This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you all for joining us in this conversation with our very own Jessica Siman. Yes. Um, we practiced the, my last name for a bit, and thank you, Jyoti, for saying it right. And <laughs> we practiced my name as well, and yes. so thank you. <laughs> um, congratulations on this brave and very beautiful book mm, of poetry. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, your poems explore such a wide range of topics from trauma to faith, family body, healing. Um, So let's begin with a poem from your dedication. Yes. When I dance, I dance with you. When I sing, I sing for you. When I write, I write to you. When I breathe, I breathe through you. To the women that sweat, cried, bled for me. I dedicate this ink to you. So tell us a little bit about you. You grew up in Lebanon. Yeah. um, So I was born and raised in Lebanon, and I lived all of my life until the age of 24 in Lebanon and a little bit in Dubai uh, and in the Arab region working there. And um, at the age of 24, I moved here to go to Stanford um, on a full scholarship, and it was my first time in America. Mm-hmm. So I landed in, you know, SFO and went, took a cab to Palo Alto, and I got there. I'm like, this doesn't look like American Pie or all the movies. This is a little village, and everything closes early, and there are no surfers. Uh-huh. So it was um, the beginning of a cultural shock, um, and um, but also the beginning of, individuating from my parents mm-hmm. um, as it is culturally normative for us to be very close to our parents, to live with them, to follow their guidance. And all of a sudden I was away in a different continent um, with no friends or family. Um, and I remember the first part of my time in America was very hard and um, trying to guide myself into what am I going to do and how am I going to live Mm -hmm. yeah and so after business school I joined Airbnb and at the time it was a very small company and and people were in school were making fun of me like they're going to go work in real estate um like renting apartments Mm -hmm. um but uh but it turned out to be the real business school I really learned about building companies and uh, and scaling, and also I was my life was my identity was around work at the time, so I was defined by my success and by how many hours I worked uh, and how fast I raised in the ranks of the company. Um, eventually, I began feeling um, depressed 
uh, although I was successful on paper, I would go home and cry. I would have panic attacks. Um, and that forced me in a way to ask myself, um, what is the point of all of this? And why am I even here on this earth? How am I contributing? And just looking around and seeing all the suffering and the pain. Um, so I began interviewing people who are actually doing work that is impactful and that they love. And that turned into a company I started. So I left Airbnb and started the passion company. And we were running five-week programs to help people find and pursue their passions. And what ended up happening is I found my passion and I quit the company. <laughs> yeah. We're very happy about this. Yeah, I am too. I'm, I realize my passion is not to run companies. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, we would go a little bit into that, but my journey of... Um, healing and and for me healing is about turning around and looking back and not just looking back at my say childhood but at um in the native american tradition they say that um we impact seven generations ahead and we're impacted by seven generations behind and in a way that was symbolic to me looking at my parents what they've been through and looking at my grandparents and also looking at my society and family structure and country and region and how all of that impacted who I am as a person today. Um, yeah, and I am a representation of all of that. So that journey led me to being here right now with you, like that looking back. Mm -hmm. So it's what did you find looking back? What, what did, did you I discover? not find? Uh -huh. I wish they were only roses and um, and honey and milk <laughs> that's the name of a book actually um, I, when I when I looked back I found um, well there is a poem uh, that like a very short poem uh, the closer I um, the closer I got to the moon I saw its many craters and I know it would get me um, so the closer I looked at my childhood and at my parents' um, kind of history, I saw the brokenness. Uh, the brokenness. The craters that, on the moon. Yeah, the craters. Yeah. The brokenness that I could, I could only see by, yeah, stopping and sitting and feeling. Um, I saw that there was a lot of silence around the trauma, whether it was... Uh, on a familial family structure level, but but most importantly on a nation level. Um, so that's an example. Um, in Lebanon, we had a civil war, and all none of the history books talk about the civil war in school. So I grew up at the end of the civil war, and in school that was not mentioned. So if you think about how that enters our collective consciousness, uh, in a way that it makes you think you're crazy. To feel things and then that whatever you're feeling not being given context and being denied, um, I would say makes the trauma even more complex. Mm -hmm. So for those of us um, protected from the realities of war, yes. can you tell us a little bit about what you experienced and then how that was unacknowledged? Right. So... Um, Whoever has been to Lebanon would know that um, it's a country that has a lot of life and 
in other words, we party a lot and we love to dress well and look always look forever young um, with plastic surgery. So, um, but also people are very hospitable and loving. So there is that. So that was the part that I was allowed to look at. And for me, growing uh, what the impact of the Civil War was very, in a way, subtle at the at the beginning. And um, so that subtlety of the Civil War um, came in a way that I would, for example, struggle with anxiety mm-hmm. or have um, recurrent dreams, nightmares, or I would see friends uh, doing a lot of drugs and having addictions, but... And so, so it, it's pervasive in a way, the way we treat our environment. Like in Lebanon, we have no, really have no respect for the environment. Uh, we've ruined our environment. So, so just watching this and being able to connect that back for me um, to something, and that something being the war, started bringing up for me in therapy memories of the, the years when I was living the war. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a couple of poems that I want to read. Um, and one of them is a memory that I had repressed. So the idea of examining and why it's hard to do because these memories of terror are going to surface. Um, so it's called The Loaf of Bread. I waited, no smashed against the window, counting the bombs, praying they did not hit you. You said we needed a loaf of bread but you did not return at sunset. I imagined you dead. And the impact um, these events have on the human nervous system is something that I came to learn. That is also silence or not, not, no one wants to look at it. Uh, like my mother going and not coming back and there were bombs and I'm stuck somewhere alone because the person that was supposed to stay with me left and I'm a little girl, I'm four years old, right? So if I bring that to the consciousness of my parents, they would say, oh, whatever, let's not look at the past. But I have enough safety right now to see how this impacted me. And I want to heal that. It is, and and it's normalized. Mm-hmm. The terror is normalized. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, since we all have been through it, you have no right to come and say it impacted you. Mm-hmm. So that's the shame. Yeah. When I tell my mom that I, at the beginning that I was writing this book, it was a very hard, it wasn't even a conversation because I was getting yelled at, but, <laughs> but that's how it's also cultural. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> but in a way that it's, the way the silencing happens is it happened to all of us and we're fine. Yeah. So you'd better be fine. Mm-hmm. So there's a, you know, this is our stance on the matter. You yeah. Know, we're fine. We're fine. Mm-hmm. We're fine and you move on. You don't look back. Mm-hmm. So you're breaking lots of rules. Oh, I am. <laughs> and I'm in trouble. Are you? Yes. <laughs> but I can handle it. I am, um, but I also, two things. One, I learned to take pride of the, of the rule breaking uh-huh. um, and realize that the opposite of shame is pride. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, for a long time, I didn't know how to work with shame. Mm-hmm. And then um, when I started 
like flipping it into I'm like, what's the flip side? It's but I'm proud that I'm speaking up. Um, and that's one. And two, I know deep in my heart that the work that I'm doing is going to help the future generations. So it's not just about my parents or me. It's beyond. Yeah. There's something in what you're saying about the importance of putting your experience into language. Yeah. Um, you speak many languages. Yeah. yeah, I do speak four languages and... Um, it's interesting when I meet someone here, when I first moved to the U.S., people would idealize, idealize me based on that, especially when I go on dates. Oh, you speak multiple, multiple languages, like, we're going to have a second date. And I was always shocked why. But um, the truth is that in Lebanon, a lot of us speak multiple languages because of the different you know, colonization that took place and how they were also cultural. Uh, and the fact that we're a small country and we're a country, we're, our history is one of trading, mm -hmm. right? So we're the travelers, the traders. So that comes naturally to speak multiple languages. But um, the way I noticed I do it is when I'm angry, I like to be angry in Arabic. And when I'm in love, I like to speak French. And when I want to do business and hustle, it's English. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you choose to write this book in English? Yeah, I, I have to say a part of me is sad that I didn't write it in Arabic, mm -hmm. um, but also hopeful that in my next book will be in Arabic. But I've been living in the U.S. for about nine years, and I think in English um, it feels more accessible. Uh-huh. Yeah. But the process has got me to ask myself, um, well, like you're asking, people ask me, why don't you write in Arabic? And I think it's valid and I want to. Uh -huh. You know, there's some research done that says that different emotional experiences that we have are actually encoded in different languages if we grow up speaking multiple languages. Do you find that that might be so for you? I can Aside from business and love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I can imagine that um, if I were to go to a therapist, which hasn't happened yet, who spoke Arabic, um, I would perhaps be able to process in a different way my childhood mm -hmm. uh, and be able to speak to the parts of my psyche that are younger mm -hmm. uh, and connect with them differently. Mm -hmm. There's an immediacy there. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're speaking about therapy, and it sounds as though therapy has played a pretty big role in your life. Yeah, huge role. Um, therapy gave me the first experience of feeling seen and for all parts of myself. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way that I, it was a combination of love and safety, which I didn't get from my parents. Um, not in a way to blame, but understandably so. We were in a war zone, mm -hmm. and my parents both grew up poor in their with their own series of trauma. Um, but and and it was magical. Mm -hmm. It felt like it was um, not knowing that you're hungry for something, and then you eat it, and you realize you've been hungry for it all of your life. And even when I now talk about it, there is like sadness and grief that comes up around the missing experience. Mm -hmm. Knowing once you taste it, you say, oh, I could have 
had it all this time. Yeah. Yeah, and so in, in therapy, what was interesting was um, it it was a space where the parts of me, the writer, the the therapist, surfaced. I didn't know they existed. You found your therapist self by writing. It was it was magical, and it made me want to do this work because it was the most impactful work. It was. It had the most impact on my life, more than my Stanford education, more than all my achievements. All of this withered in front of the uh, the the tree of therapy. Mm-hmm. It sounds like such a process of self revelation, of kind of revealing yourself to yourself through this process. Yes, mm-hmm. it, it's meeting parts of myself that were buried and repressed. Um, actually, there's a poem that I want to read. I hope I find it <laughs> quickly. But, um, hmm. And if not, I think I know it by heart. <laughs> okay. I'll say, because this one came, oh, here. Sometimes you have to kill your mother, your job, your father, the system, the technology, the teachers, sorry, the mentors, the bosses, the schools, to find yourself deep down, buried, gasping for air. Yeah. So symbolically, hopefully, killing (laughs) all of the ways that these authorities, these expectations, these structures um, kind of bury one under the rubble. Yes. And to kind of find yourself there still gasping for air. Right. And it, to me, it's also an image of the rubbles of the Civil War. Yeah. The way I perceive, see my country right now that I moved and I have been here and I want to read actually a poem about home on that note, but um, I was able to see that we are still under the rubbles. It reminds me a little bit of the America. It's still under the rubbles of racism, right? And it's when you think, oh, we're just because time has passed, it's done. Right. No, that's not how history works or even trauma works. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's cyclical. Mm-hmm. The rebel actually just stays put. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what's buried underneath unless we move all of the, yeah, the stones. We're living on these. Um, beautiful homes that are built uh, from this, like under them, there are all these skeletons. That's how I feel about going home. Yeah. So speaking of home, uh, I would say that poem, some of the people who left, whatever, whether it's their city, their state, or their country could relate. It's called When Your Home is a Faraway Land. Sometimes the only way to realize you have grown up in tragedy is to move to a faraway land. Sometimes the only way to get curious about your origins is to leave the land of your origin. Sometimes the only way to forgive your parents is get to know them from thousands of miles away. Sometimes the only way to meet yourself is to leave the place that shapes 
parts of you and also obscured parts of you. Sometimes the only way to see beauty in your culture is to wash yourself with that foreign white culture. Sometimes the only way to fall in love with your heritage is to realize that everywhere is a little broken in its own way. Sometimes we have to leave our country, our home, our parents, our city, our habits. Sometimes we have to hate, feel angry, reject, ignore, forget. Before we can look back at home with gratitude and watery eyes that only can see that broken is beautiful. Yeah, broken is beautiful. And after writing this book, I found a deeper love for my ancestors, a deeper appreciation for my land that I didn't know was possible. Mm-hmm. And you got there from seeing it at some distance, getting a little bit of distance. Right, and allowing myself to be angry. Mm-hmm. Because, what did the anger do for you? Oh, a lot. Uh-huh. First of all, I'm so happy that I could be angry because as a woman, um, I had a lot of shame around my anger. But then what happened is anger gave me two things. One, it gave me empowerment. It gave me a voice. So I would feel locked here and I can't, can't speak. Mm-hmm. And two, um, anger gave me freedom to love because it showed me that I could be angry and it's not the end of the world. But once I you know, sh- express my anger, I can be me and I can love fully. But before it was as if I was acting all the time mm-hmm. and putting this face of being nice. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel fully real. Yeah. And I found that I tend to trust people more when they're angry, when they show their anger. Because I'm not afraid that they might ghost me. Well, I don't write about ghosting in the book, but maybe my next book. (laughs) (laughs) You have some things to say about that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So how did your understanding of trauma develop or change as you wrote? Right. It was interesting because I used to, Think that trauma is, for example, you've been through an earthquake. That's trauma. You you were in a car accident. That's trauma. And so it was hard for me to understand, uh, to to validate for myself the trauma I lived because I didn't know that was trauma. Mm -hmm. So I came to learn that, and, and, and that validated in a way what I was experiencing is that a lot of the trauma could be subtle and they call it complex trauma. It could be neglect, abandonment, um, abuse, even if it's emotional abuse. And um, living with sort of social turmoil like civil war. Right. Mm. And also realizing that um, sometimes, at least for me, the war within my home was impacted in me more than the war outside, although they were definitely interrelated and connected. But not my ma- my mother being in fight or flight and being physically abused while I was in her belly mm-hmm. impacted me more than if I had a relatively loving, safe um, nuclear family and there was war outside mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they... Right. Yeah. So they compound each other and they both mutually... Um, implicated each other, the the war inside your family and the war outside in the world. Right. And understanding that sometimes 
it, it is the ne simple neglect of a child that is trauma was a big aha moment for me. And at the same time, when I talk about it with my family, it's impossible to get anywhere because there is shame and and shame just blocks any conversation mm -hmm. that can lead to healing. So you're back to the difficulty of pointing at something that others might not want to acknowledge. Right. It's, it, it's, it's a very, um, I would say, a theme of my life has been to see... Uh, what's wrong and speak up and and everyone around me being a bystander mm -hmm. yeah it's lonely it's lonely to be the person who speaks up yes and mm -hmm. and to be um saying things that people don't like and especially people in power whether when you're a kid it's your parents or whether it's the government mm -hmm. it's lonely and it can make one a target it can be dangerous yes mm -hmm. Um, actually, there is a short one-liner poem. Um, the sound of the militia machine guns was a breeze compared to their verbal storms. Mm -hmm. So as a little girl, what was most terrifying was my parents fighting. It mm -hmm. wasn't really the bomb. Mm -hmm. Of course, the bomb was terrifying. But, but there was a different kind of bomb. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was the internal war, mm -hmm. the inner war. Yeah. The war in, inside the home, yeah. inside the family. Um, I'm wondering if you might read us the poem, um, <coughs> I Am the Abuser and the Victim. Yeah. Um, so speaking of trauma, the hardest part about healing was acknowledging that I also have a bully in me. To really not only intellectually look at my shadow, but really feel into my shadow. Mm -hmm. The part of me that wants to destroy, that's mm -hmm. mean, uh, that's rageful, that's envious, that's jealous. Mm -hmm. um, and and that has been the weight of forgiveness. So yeah, I do have um, a couple of poems. So this one is called I'm the Abuser and the Victim. I'm a, the abuser and the victim, but first I was the victim who mimicked her abuser. So she feels connected to him, so she survives. The abuser invaded my body and brain and now resides in me, telling me I am nothing. I try to get him out, so I tell you, you are nothing. And when I wake up, I see that I created another victim of his. In the middle of the shame and the confusion, between wondering if I am him or am I his victim, I realize I have become both. Trauma is a complex beast that turns us into who we fear most. Yeah, that was the heavy revelation, is that I internalized some of the abuse. And then we have a relationship with our trauma that that kind of is much more complex and much more inside us. Right, right. It's it's very complex, and in a way, it allows me to forgive my parents and people who hurt me because I could see that as a human, um, we we have the darkness and the light, and um, 
And I could see that in them, the imperfection. There is a de-idealization of my parents that happened in this process too, that they are also victims and abusers. Mm -hmm. And I am a victim and an abuser. Mm -hmm. And for me, my work is around contain finding ways to heal the both the victim and the abuser not just one part not splitting and um and just embracing one part of myself mm-hmm. rejecting another. Mm-hmm. really making enough room inside for all of these parts of you yeah. reminds me of the beauty and the rubble the beauty and the broken pieces yes mm-hmm. yes, yes. The, the japanese um there is a japanese ball tradition where um what is it called it's a video where the ball breaks and then they put it back together and they say that the ball is even more beautiful Uh after it broke Uh yeah Yeah. so kind of along the lines of the trauma and your your growing understanding of trauma and the ways that you write about it you also write um about your suicidality so what was it like to write about that that was in the hardest, one of the hardest parts because, well, I will read it. Sometimes it's easier for me um, to read than to speak of to things. Um, yeah. Where is it? Sorry. Paris, 2017. This is a short story. I was walking down a Parisian street with anxiety pounding in my chest. Suddenly, without any warning, a torrent of tears erupted. I sat down on the front porch of a hotel and wept. Time disappeared. A flashback of my teenage self came to me. She was in such despair that she swallowed pills, hoping someone would see her. Her father found her, she was taken to the hospital, and they did not speak to her for months. Her desperate plea for help was met with complete abandonment. She never got the chance to mourn. I looked up, and there was a new moon hanging in the vast, soft Parisian sky, telling her everything was going to be all right. I hugged myself and told her the same, for in that moment... She was alive. I felt a relief. I felt light. I felt free. It took 20 years to mourn the pain. It took two minutes to be free again. Yeah, and I'm, I, and we talked and I said, I really want to bring this conversation, although it's hard for me um, because I, it's important that we talk about it mm-hmm. because as soon as I, I hear someone who, you know, is thinking about that, there is shame. Oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. My life is going great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that actually makes it even harder for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a normalization for me that I got in therapy around. It's okay to have suicidal fantasies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was, um, kind of an an acceptance that sometimes life is hard and sometimes, and life for me, like in a way has no meaning too and can be hopeless Mm -hmm. and having some validation around it's okay if you have these thoughts and I'm here to support you Mm -hmm. and making space for that. Um, For me, what, what was hard is that 
I wanted, I didn't, when I think back at it, I didn't want to die. I just wanted my parents to love me and see me. And as a teenager, that was the kind of last thing I had. It was like, okay, if I die, are you going to love, like, look at me and love me and give me attention? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. You you have a short poem about a, a suicidal fantasy. Yeah. About what would happen. I do. Um, it speaks to, I think, uh, an idea that many people have about what could happen, you know. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And being able and, to write about it liberated me from that desire. Mm-hmm. I think that was something that I got as soon as I was able to talk about it in a safe space um, or someone who wasn't judgmental. I was like, oh, I actually, I feel connected to you. I don't know why I even had that thought. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes um, people who aren't clinicians especially underestimate how much an idea about suicide has to do with an idea about what will happen after you're gone. Yes. And there's kind of a fantasy that you'll be there for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this one, so it's a relational suicidal act. fantasy. She will finally hold me close, there, dead in her arms, regretting all the harm. She will see a beauty mark on my left cheek, imperfections and wisps of curls. Then she will come to love me like a mother loves a daughter, bathing my body in the freshest rose water. So after I wrote this, I was so relieved. Because you heard how much you were wanting mothering? Yes, and Mm -hmm. I said, I can get it in so many ways. Mm -hmm. I can get it through my therapist, through myself. Mm -hmm. That was the biggest revelation, Mm -hmm. is I could look at myself in the mirror, and when I wake up, when I don't look my best, and still look at myself and say, I'm glad you're here. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. And that for me is a wiring that happened perhaps around my teenage years. And that's something that I learned like in the complexity of when we get triggered, we regress. Mm -hmm. So we regress to whether depending on the age, like maybe to a child. So in a way that me speaking the language of the child is the way to help myself versus trying to rationalize it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as an adult. Yeah. So you're really on a mission to kind of destigmatize, uh, lift shame from talking about these dark depths that we people go through. Yeah, shame is an asshole. <laughs> you, you know what's interesting is before I learned about shame, and mainly from Brene Brown's books, I didn't know that I felt shame. Yeah. If you ask me, I'm like, no, I don't feel shame, I'm fine. And then when I started tracking... Oh, that's what that's called. Holy (laughs) moly, I'm in shame most of the time. Mm -hmm. So it was not the good news part of my healing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But but also I started noticing, because I became aware of my own shame, people's shame. Wow. We are such a shameful society. We all, we shame unconsciously because Mm -hmm. even as soon as you're in school, you're ranked. Even religion tells you you're good or you're bad. 
And and so in that, I started noticing the shame. So before I would disassociate. So I would feel shame and then suddenly I would feel nothing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, and and right now I can feel the shame and I and the way out of shame is through human connection mm-hmm. through someone I trust so I reach out to a friend some of them are here mm-hmm. I'm like hey I'm in shame mm-hmm. and then I don't have to go through the disassociation not knowing why I disassoci- disassociated and or or getting angry at someone without them knowing why yes so I did this um, art project with a photographer who was based in San Francisco where we picked um, different moments of shame for women and we photographed them. So here's the thing. I started. I posted it on Instagram, and uh, one of the things that I'm ashamed of is my like watching porn or being interested in sex as a woman, which sounds so like lame and talking about it here in the Bay Area. But in Lebanon, like as much as we want to claim that we're open and we do yoga and and drink healthy juices, um, yeah, that also made it to Lebanon. But um, but we're still, as a woman, if I said, oh yeah, or, or for example, I'm queer, which is something I'm still debating how am I going to share. I just shared it. Um, <laughs> hi, mom. Uh, yes, I'm. Um, so there's. Oh my God, how dare she? Or something's wrong with her and. For me, so there was a bunch of Lebanese guys who um, made fun of me and like in their own internal group and someone sent me a screenshot because I said I watch porn mm-hmm. um, and um, and I cried and, and I had a couple of, I think, Saudi people comment like, shame on you, in Arabic, uh, for posting. Because uh, one of the fo- photos that we did was me with catch up on my pants which is period and that there is still shame around period Mm -hmm. so that was I would yeah it was they made me feel shame for it Mm -hmm. so I think it's important sometimes to get out of the bubble and and remember that we live in a world that still shame us just for being in a woman's body Mm -hmm. just for the mere fact of living in a female body yeah Mm-hmm. or many other kinds of bodies that get yeah. shamed. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine myself with all the privilege I have not be doing this work that I'm doing, but not speaking up, at least from my experience, for the people who don't have you know, the privilege, the time, the money to go to therapy, to work on themselves, to understand their trauma. And my hope is at least I could inspire people to share their story when they're ready. Mm-hmm. So that's what how we heal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've done so at some personal cost. I understand that um, there have been some consequences for you in writing these poems um, yeah. on a number of levels. I mean, you, you briefly spoke about your family's reaction when I come back to that in a minute. But yeah. um, your publisher had some concerns about one of your poems. Yes. So I wrote a poem, which in when I perform parts of the book, I dance, I belly dance to it it's so weird I don't know how that happened <laughs> but with with my musician Ahmed and um, he plays the tabla and it's called I'm not mentally ill so uh, my publisher yes they said are you sure you want to include this we're not sure because that will because people who identify as mentally ill might take it the wrong way and uh, and I pushed back and I'm glad I did because it's important for me to 
choose not to be put in a box of mental illness. The other thing on a side note, what psychology means, it's interesting because when Freud, you know, termed psychoanalysis, in German, psyche means soul. So it's the analysis, understanding, the knowing of the soul. When it got translated to America, it got translated to mental, to the mind. How fascinating is that? So when I think about, for me, mentally ill doesn't apply to me. I think that, yes, my soul is ill, but because the whole world is ill. Like, how can I not be ill if the planet is on the verge of destruction? How can I not be ill if people are still dying of hunger, if there's still hate crime, mm -hmm. if women are still getting stoned, not like smoking up stoned like... Yeah. <laughs> Um, as I'm glad the, they can As in them. the act of violence. Yes. Being How can I not be ill? And so I want, yeah, I'm happy to read. Actually, before oh. you do, I want to just go back. The way you're speaking about this somehow connects, I think, with you performing this with belly dance and percussion. So, so how did that come about? It came so, like we were, so I was with Ahmed at my place and we were rehearsing and I started reading it out loud and he had the tabla and he started being, he's like, I'm going to play baladi tabla, he's Egyptian. And it's like, he, you know, his was, and I was like, yeah. And then I started, I kind of want to do it now, but I can't. But I started being like, I'm not mentally ill. My soul is ill. And I started moving and I'm like, and it just vibed. So then I asked my friend Reem um, to let me borrow the belly dancer belt. <laughs> Uh-huh. And um I I started performing it and people love it. It's they say it's one of their favorite performances because there was such empowerment in saying no, I want to define myself the way I want to define myself and and there is something about like being in in this all together. Like I, I was no longer in the corner being like, "Oh, I have trauma and PTSD and I'm alone. It's like, no, we all have some kind of trauma. Mm -hmm. And you're lighting up when you're talking about yes, it. Yes, and we uh -huh. all have, like, we all have such also beauty in us. Mm -hmm. No matter, even in our suffering, sometimes the most beautiful people, when I see someone crying from pain, I see their beauty. Mm -hmm. In fact, I see their light. Mm -hmm. And I saw that my light was shining in these dark what could be considered as dark writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so yeah, right? yeah, please. Yeah, and feel free to break out into dance if you'd like to. It's so long. I'm not mentally ill. My heart is ill. My chest burns so hard, I can't breathe. Anxiety swipes me off my feet. I can't speak. Not mentally ill. My thoughts are ill. Harassing me with stories of shame and self-blame. But this is how I survived the pain. I am not mentally ill. My soul is ill. Of intergenerational trauma in my genes the overwhelming responsibility to heal. I'm not mentally ill. I'm emotionally healthy. I have easier access to feelings. 
our culture has repressed, lost, despair, despair, heartache, rage. I'm not mentally ill. My soul is resilient to do all the work, but with no upside, but the healing of generations to come. I'm not mentally ill. The world we live in is ill. War, abandonment, abuse, silence makes it unsafe to be present. So I defend, I act out, I escape, I disassociate. If I'm mentally ill, you must see that our hearts are ill, our souls are ill. If one of us is ill, our whole world is ill. There's a very striking, you know, uh, coming together as you're reading this of, you know, you're kind of describing pain, describing a certain type of suffering at the same time that there's this kind of joyous bubbling up that yeah. seems to be happening. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of, um, I, I found empowerment in, um, in no longer hiding my darkness and my anger and my shame and my weakness and and not being put allowing myself to not be put together anymore mm -hmm. i wasn't really before it was the surface but now i can show up more as i am and there is such lightness and, and joy mm-hmm yeah and a really integrated joy a joy that seems to coexist with a lot of awareness of the suffering of you know yes kind of yes. I would the, say it's, it's the joy of beauty and the suffering that you were just talking about. Right. It's the joy that comes from not bypassing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bypassing is something that I, um, I struggle with when I see in our society uh, is when people use, for example, spirituality to deny the darkness or their pain. Oh, I'm just happy and light and like positive vibes only. Mm -hmm. That on its own is shaming. In fact, and it's a repetition of the silencing around the trauma. Mm -hmm. Because how can you be happy all the time if there's war in Syria? That doesn't make sense to me. You're just associated. Uh, so you have also had some challenging responses from your family, as you mentioned before. Yes. And you have a poem that goes right to the heart of that. Yes. Um, yes, so basically I was on a ride with my mother in Lebanon when I visited the summer and she's asked to see the book before it came out. And I said, no, because this is my story and my book. And I know if she saw it, she's going to remove all the poems. So I will have to write another book. <laughs> and I'm not doing that right now. Um, so uh, so she literally like yelled at me. And it was a, there was traffic. Oh, so, so it was, it was a, a long, long yelling. ride. Uh -huh. um, and I just sat there and didn't say anything. Um, and then we stopped talking for a few months. And I was terrified because it felt as if I was going to lose my mother. And I started having dreams. So I'm going to read you the dreams while writing this book. Sitting in a room with hundreds of people trying to give them the book, they each refuse. Dream number two, mother transcribing my book in a journal, yelling, crying, and damning me. That almost happened, Trying to write, my fingers melting. So there was a lot of anxiety around the book. And 
But going back to my mother, what the interesting plot twist that happened is by me standing in my power and saying, I respect you and hear you and I'm still going to publish this book. She came around, but it's very also Lebanese the way she came around is we don't talk about it. Like all of a sudden she calls and says, can I help you market it? But we never talked about the fact that, you know, she yelled at me for 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) That was not, or that how, she wouldn't take me through the process about how she came around, but she did. And I think that's testament to sometimes um, uh, people, well, there's also a poem about that. Like people might be, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing. But then if you really sit in your truth um, and stand for what you believe in, people come around is what I saw. Mm-hmm. So felt, uh, it, I think it's, there's a theme in what you're saying about how strongly you feel about saying what you need to say um, and kind of going through the storm to trust that the people who care about you and who you care about will find you on the other side of that. Yes. I have. To, I had to find, build my own family. Mm-hmm. And, um, and not in a way that the more I was becoming more vulnerable, I started seeing who attracting or being closer to people who are also vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And these people will be there for me you know, even if this book, my, even if all my parents left me and, and they don't want to talk to me, mm-hmm. I know that I have these friends. I can, they can be there for me. But you know what? It didn't even matter. Mm-hmm. What matters is I have myself. Mm-hmm. But for the longest time, I've abandoned myself. Yeah. I would be my own enemy. And, and there was a little bit of no inner knowing this time. And I think that is the growth of healing mm-hmm. and that the work that the fruits of healing are very, are not are very sweet, but there's not a lot of, they're very subtly sweet. Like, you know, the maybe bittersweet uh-huh. actually. Yes. And they take uh, some work. Yes. You know. So it's not like one, like, Oh, here's the spring season. No, it's like you have to wait a few years and then the spring season comes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so hang in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is that little knowing that, Oh, I'm going to be all right. Even if no one wants to talk to me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a revolution in itself. Yeah, that restoration of yourself to yourself. Yeah, the c- coming home to myself. Coming home to yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's still work in progress. Mm-hmm. But that is, at the end of the day, I, I realize I can't change anyone. Um, so, like, I, I had this pattern. I hope I'm over this pattern where I attract broken men and then I work on, like... I'm like, my project is to change them, is to let them, you know, go to therapy or um, start becoming more vulnerable, feel their feelings, um, meditate, all of that. Drink juice. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I failed every time. So finally, I realized if someone doesn't want to change, they don't want. And it's not my job to be anyone's parents, but my parent Mm -hmm. or as a therapist. Because it's part of the, you know, the the role, um, and that was interesting to see yeah. that, um, like, to release that energy of having to change people and just focus on myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so no more broken men. Who, but but again, like I I need the pain. I was in so much pain that I wanted to change. Mm-hmm. 
So if anything, pain has been, and people say that, oh, pain is a gift. And I, maybe that's not the word, but pain is the, um, to, the what gets us to change as humans. If I'm comfortable, why would I want to work on myself or change or look back? Yeah. Yeah, as Viktor Frankl says, like, you make meaning for your life. Life has no meaning. And, and for me, I found meaning in my pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you you were kind of telling us a little bit about this, but do you have any closing thoughts about where you are in your process now? Yes. Um, I am an adult. Uh-huh. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Well, for people who are in the therapy world, it's a big deal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And for people who are not, let me explain. Um, uh, it's the process of individuation uh, from our parents, but it's mostly emotional and, and, and psychological individuation. Of course, I was financially independent since I was 20, and, and I have my own place and all of that for sure. But emotionally, I was um, still attached to my parents and expecting them to parent me and not getting the right parenting and then getting depressed. And so the whole process has been to learn to parent myself. I still have similar challenges emotionally. I still go into shame, but now I don't go into shame for three days. Mm-hmm. I still, um, you know, get sometimes mean. <laughs> with, like if I'm, I can be mean, you know, and but now I can forgive myself quicker and then go and apologize without the shame that usually blocks me from connecting with anyone. So I can own my shit. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about what you think about individuation culturally. You know, so coming from a Lebanese cultural yes. frame, what do you think about that? I, I think that they're complementary. I'm actually yeah. very grateful for the the Western way of, um, of the, the concept of the individual mm-hmm. because that was empowering for me. At the same time, I feel really lonely living here. No matter what, it feels like a lonely society. And it's really hard to make deep connection where people will actually show up for you when you're sick. Or mm-hmm. One of the my favorite things about Lebanon is people just show up to your home and then they walk in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they walk into your room, which for an American would be like, what the? And, or, or like very touchy. You know, and so when I came to the U.S., I would want to hug everyone and be talking to someone and put my hand on their like leg, and uh, and then people would be shocked. So then I realized, oh, that's probably I should stop doing that. Um, so I did, and um, but all to say is that they both beautiful in their own ways, and they're both harmful in their own ways, right? For me to not be able to discover my own true path in this life and calling and uh, and build my own healthy sense of self, you know, that, like that is, I would not, I would, that's the most important thing. But at the same time, being in community and and living with close people and friends and in tribes is also important. So I feel like we can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because someone posted on Facebook uh, that I know she's a Lebanese poet, and she asked, what's the word of community in Arabic? And no one can f- figure it out. So we don't even use the word community because our culture is um, by nature communal. Mm-hmm. You don't actually need a word for it. Yeah, and we don't need to put it in every marketing pamphlet. 
point taken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so there is a poem I want to read about uh, where I'm at. Oh, I wish there was music. Okay. No. I waited at the edge of the cliff. Seasons passed me by and I whispered, the next one will be the one. Gray hair, wrinkles, and many aches later, I thought I was fooling time. But time was no fool, and its wind pushed me forth, and I jumped. Instead of falling, I soared. Only when you decide to jump do you realize you can fly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much, you. and congratulations again. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>